Hello, and welcome to the third edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I'm your host, ExoAcademian. This week, we're going to look into the results of the Free Foundation's Experiencer Research Study. This was the largest study of its kind ever conducted. Very interesting uh, study and very interesting results, surprising to many. So what is free? Well, that's short for the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Experiences, also known as FREE. Uh, FREE was co-founded by the late Apollo 14 astronaut, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, along with Dr. Rudy Shield, who's a research astronomer at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, um, Mary Rodwell, researcher, and Ray Hernandez, an attorney, an experiencer, and a prior PhD candidate at the University of California at Berkeley. Free is comprised of nine retired academic professors and lay researchers who have been researching the field of unidentified aerial phenomenon and contact with non-human intelligence for more than 30 years. The executive director of Free is Harvard astrophysicist, Dr. Rudy Shield. This all begins though with Ray Hernandez. Let's talk about his story. Now, if you think that someone like Ray Hernandez, a co-founder of the Free Foundation, would be perhaps a lifelong uh, experiencer or someone who's had, had a lifelong interest in this kind of thing, you'd be wrong. Ray Hernandez was anything but typical when it comes to this field. Uh, he was an ultra-rationalist, an atheist, um, a tax attorney, uh, very much interested in nuts and bolts, things you can measure uh, scientifically, and had no background nor interest in this field whatsoever. Now, there are numerous places where you can read about and watch videos where Ray recounts his experience this one fine day. Uh, so I won't go into too much detail, but the, uh, the high notes are like this. Ray comes downstairs one day, um, kind of down because uh, their dog is really, really sick, a dog that's very precious to them. And they expect that that very day they're going to have to put the dog down. Uh, he comes downstairs to witness his wife and what looks to be some sort of strange energy uh, in the center of the room as well, what he describes as an energy being. Uh, what proceeds to happen is uh, both his wife and the dog disappear before his eyes, at which point he goes back upstairs and goes to sleep. And that kind of thing happens more than you would realize in these kind of situations. Anyway, long story short, Eventually, he finds his wife and the dog have been returned. Uh, the dog has had a massive transformation, though. Not only is the dog healed from whatever ailments were leading them to have to uh, regretfully decide to put him down, he was healed of that. On top of that, he was running around, dashing around, jumping off the walls like a puppy, not like the dog of advanced years that he was supposed to be. Now, this was just the first of many strange encounters Ray had uh, following this initial event, but you can read about that, watch videos about that elsewhere. Let's move on. What this leads Ray to do, this initial event, is get on the internet, start doing research, find out what on earth just happened. Again, for an ultra-rationalist, an atheist, someone who's grounded in the foundations of the scientific method, this made no sense to him. Uh, he came across a lot of ufology articles, ufology websites that talked about nuts and bolts experiences, uh, craft in the sky and whatnot, extraterrestrials piloting them perhaps, uh, but found nothing really to describe or explain what he had experienced. 
Long story short, he sends out a bunch of emails, eventually gets put in contact with Dr. Edgar Mitchell, uh, Dr. Rudy Shield, and people like that. Um, and Dr. Edgar Mitchell uh, explains to Ray that relax, you will end up receiving some sort of communication as to a mission. Uh, this happens often for people who have these kind of contact experiences. Just relax, you'll receive your mission, and then you'll know what your next steps are. Well, one week later, Ray had clarity on that mission. It involved studying the phenomenon in a more dedicated and specifically academic way because he had found there really were no studies being done on the level that he would hope. Uh, to make a long story short, this led to the formation of what would come to be known as a Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Experiences. That name has changed since then, by the way, and we'll discuss the reasons for that later. Now, like we discussed in the first two episodes of this podcast, the Free Foundation had a sense that a variety of phenomena that are often studied individually and separately might be connected. When they looked around to find examples of studies that had been done to test this hypothesis, they found very few. Uh, by the way, the study that was done by Free ultimately is recorded in the book Beyond UFOs, The Science of Consciousness and Contact with Non-Human Intelligence. One such study they did find that was very informative for them and spoke to how they would conduct their own study was published by Dr. Kenneth Ring. And in the first chapter of Beyond UFOs, uh, I quote, in 1992, Ring published one of the few statistical studies on UAP abductees titled The Omega Project, Near-Death Experiences, UFO Encounters, and Mind at Large. Ring interviewed and administered a battery of psychological tests and structured questionnaires to 97 individuals who had UAP-related abduction experiences with non-human intelligence, and a separate 74 individuals that had undergone an NDE, that is, a near-death experience. Continuing, according to Ring, both the subject groups manifested very similar positive behavioral transformations despite their uniquely different experiences. He noted similar findings for both groups as a result of their experiences and compared with control groups in such areas as physiology and neurology, psychic abilities, paranormal experiences, and psychological transformation in their perspective and opinions of various topics. Both groups also underwent profound positive psychological profile changes from their experiences. Now let's discuss how the study was conducted. From chapter one, I quote, the study paradigm incorporated two comprehensive quantitative survey instruments totaling 551 questions and a qualitative survey instrument comprised of written responses to 70 open-ended questions taken by subjects from over 100 countries via the online survey program, SurveyMonkey. Now, just recapping here, uh, they took note of demographic information, including age, gender, occupation, state and country, race, ethnicity. Uh, and they asked a variety of questions, including about telepathic communications. Was it physical contact on earth? Was it physical contact on a perceived UAP craft, perhaps in another 3D reality on another planet, in a 3D matrix reality? Was the experience psychic or parapsychological? Uh, a host of questions. And the quantitative survey was divided into two phases. Quoting again, the analysis of responses obtained in phase one helped to inform additional questions for the phase two survey. All subjects who participated in phase two completed phase one. There is also a phase three, 
our qualitative survey instrument, which is comprised of written responses to 70 open-ended questions and 94 additional quantitative questions administered to those who completed both phase one and two. Now, another interesting aspect of the study design for free uh, contrasts with the work of people like Dr. David Jacobs and Barbara Lamb that we discussed last week who have used regressions of clients to make conclusions about what might be going on with the phenomenon. In this case, I quote from chapter one, the participants were instructed to respond to our surveys based solely on conscious explicit memories and not based upon hypnotic regressions, lucid dreams, channeling, or other forms of memory recollection. Now, for many skeptics of this topic of inquiry, they'll argue that much of this can be explained away, ufology can be explained away, the study of the phenomenon can be explained away as merely the product of cultural myths. For instance, they would argue that the front cover for Whitley Strieber's famous book, Communion, uh, is now so ingrained in our culture, across our society, in various Western cultures across the world even, that it's quite likely that people may be manifesting this from their subconscious. Now, regarding this, this is what the free study has to say. Quote, the findings presented in this study argue against the notion that the CE represents some kind of aberrant incident that has simply been filtered through cultural myths since it is unlikely that the cultures, myths, and memes would be so consistent across the countries and ethnic racial backgrounds represented in the survey results. The results presented, for example, indicate that when sample sizes are sufficiently large for reliable reporting, they tend to be consistent across national and racial ethnic boundaries for the following survey items. These include, number one, the features associated with citing a UAP craft, Number two, conscious recollection of being on board a UAP craft. Three, the types of non-human intelligence beings encountered. Number four, the types of paranormal phenomena encountered. Number five, the frequency of reported encounters with non-human intelligence. And number six, the positivity of impact of contact experience upon respondents, among others. Okay, so that gives us some sense of how the study was put together, how it was conducted. And if you have more questions, uh, there are details uh, in pretty large measure in the Beyond UFOs book. And it's always important, I would add, to know how these studies are conducted, who's uh, conducting the studies, who's paying for it, things like this. Um, the study methodologies, always important to pay attention to that. You can guarantee that any study we discuss here on the Point of Convergence podcast, those issues will be considered. So enough with that preamble. Let's move on to the results, which we're all interested to hear. Uh, and just want to remind you, this uh, population demographics for this study included 4,000 people in more than 100 countries. Now, in terms of, first of all, what kind of entities were encountered? What do you think the results might be? Again, somewhat interesting. Number one, an energy being. Now, what does this mean? This means, uh, I've heard Ray speak about this elsewhere, this was defined as some sort of energy uh, that manifested that seemed to be conscious in some way, but had a non-humanoid shape. In other words, it wasn't like an energetic outline of a human being. Uh, it was just a sort of a ball of energy, an orb, that kind of thing. Felt like conscious energy. Energy being was number one. Number two, what do you think it's going to be? It's not the greys, it's human being. Again, very interesting. 
the number two response for the type of experience people had was with a human looking being. Number three, now we have our familiar short graves. They come in at number three. Number four, again, this might be surprising to some, ghost slash spirit. And again, this might seem like an unrelated category, but again, there are lots of reasons to believe that these may be connected. We'll be continuing to get into that as will free. Number five, the tall grays. So we have the short grays and the tall grays. Short grays coming in at number three, tall grays at number five in terms of the most common experience encounter that people have. And finally coming at number six uh, is reptilians and the mantis types. Very interesting. Now let's talk about the types of non-human intelligent beings encountered on UAP craft specifically. So this is follow-up questions. What kind of uh, uh, entities did people encounter when they were on board a UAP craft? And this is only answered by those who actually were uh, supposedly on a UAP craft. Human looking comes in at number one, 48%. Short gray, this is defined as three to four feet tall. Again, grayish skin, large black wraparound eyes, you know the, the type, 45%. They were number two, tall gray, five to nine feet tall, 33%. An other type uh, that doesn't fit any of these came in at 30%. A hybrid. Now, these are the what we talked about last week again. These are human beings that look like they've been interbred with some other species, some alien species perhaps, that came in at 20%. Next up is the insectoid mantid type. We talked about those last week as well. These are the large insect looking uh, entities that uh, look like large insects, somewhat like praying mantises are reported very often. That was 13%. Next up is our familiar reptilians, the lizard-like beings, um, 13%. Next up, spirit or ghost form, that was 10%. And again, this is very interesting. Pay attention here. This is on board a UAP craft. This is not in some haunted house uh, in New Orleans. This is on board a UAP craft. People reported seeing a spirit or ghost 10% of the time. Next up, large animal type at 5%. And then lastly, small animal type at 3%. Very interesting results. And I would suggest very surprising results. Now, that was in regards to the types of entities that were encountered by people. What about the crafts themselves, the UAPs slash UFOs? Well, interestingly, 50% of those surveyed responded that the UAP craft was, quote, not only a craft, but also a living entity. They stated that the UAP was alive, a possible explanation of how the craft is operated as revealed in the detailed responses to our phase three survey questions is that many stated that the craft is actually operated by the mind or consciousness of the non-human intelligence operating the craft. In fact, one out of four individuals have stated that they were allowed to operate the craft either before or after they got behind the wheel of the craft. Almost one third of these individuals were given a tour of the craft while almost 32% were actually allowed to roam the craft without supervision. Now, this was in regards to people's responses to experiences they had with non-human entities while on board UFOs slash UAP craft. What's interesting is the study showed that more people actually had 
interactions with these non-human entities while they were not on board craft. And this again goes against typical mainstream ufology where the discussion is usually around these nuts and bolts, flying saucers or triangles, what have you, and alien abductions that involve people being taken from their rooms, kidnapped, taken on board these nuts and bolts saucers, and having all sorts of nasty, disconcerting medical procedures conducted upon them. Quoting again from the book here, Quote, these experiences are very similar to contact experience with out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and even remote viewing. Hundreds of individuals claim that they have been taken to other realities or other dimensions where there is no time and space, and where non-human intelligence appeared to have almost angelic abilities, unquote. Very interesting, and this of course begs the question, who are these entities and what really is going on? Another very interesting finding from the experience research study is around space-time distortions. This was very common occurrence, and here I'm quoting from the book again. A curious attribute of the contact experience that defies explanation is the commonly reported distortion of time or an overwhelming feeling of isolation in the contact experiencer. Many contact experiencers who have been relocated to other dimensions slash realities and have interacted with non-human intelligence report being gone for many hours or many days, yet when they were returned, only a few minutes had lapsed. Many have reported similar time distortions in the presence of a UAP. A large percentage of CEers, that's contact experiencers, who were also taken to a UAP craft thought that many hours or days had passed, again, similar to those that were transported to other perceived realities slash dimensions, only a few minutes had passed. However, once the UAP leaves, the unusual feeling seems to disappear. Thus, the question emerges as to whether or not it is possible that the UAP may be creating a different local state of space-time, either subjective or objective, experienced by the participant. If so, it continues, this may account for the altered state of consciousness reported by many who interact with the UAP since normal time-space would end for them as they experience the altered time-space of the UAP. This effect may explain some of the anomalous aspects of the contact experience reported, such as environmental sound disappearing, feelings of isolation, missing time, electrical interference, and altered perceptions of space and time." Unquote. This is a very interesting finding, and of course, it's very common amongst experiencers, this feeling of lost time and alteration in space and time. And what's interesting is we're noticing in these results a bizarre blend of things we usually consider technological or scientific, like space-time, and other things that we consider more spiritual or energetic or mythic, like angelic presences, and yet they're all occurring at the same time. We're seeing this point of convergence between all these various types of high strangeness. Now let's step back for a second and ask, how can this be? How can these different topics, these different categories that seem unrelated in the way we think about the world, be somehow showing up sometimes simultaneously in the same experiences with this phenomenon? Well, I would argue it's pointing at something really fundamental. We don't just have a conception of reality that's missing the cherry on top. No, I would suggest this is saying we are missing by a long shot. This is all pointing to something fundamental about consciousness, fundamental about reality 
that we hardly even grasp yet. Now let's move on to the final aspect of Free's experience or research study that we'll be covering in this week's podcast. And this has to do with the overall interpretation of the event. Was it a good event, a bad event, a positive experience, a negative experience? Well, quoting from the book, one of the most important research findings from our surveys is that the UAP-related contact experience with non-human intelligence was a highly positive experience. We wanted to explore whether the UAP contact experiencer viewed their experiences as positive, negative, or neutral. We understand that this was not an easy issue to determine because of so many compounding factors. Therefore, we decided to pose this question in multiple ways. All of the responses we received to all of these questions indicated unequivocally that UAP-related contact with non-human intelligence was overwhelmingly a positive experience. Now, in addition to the positive subjective interpretations of these contact experiences, it's also important to note that the study found 85% of those surveyed reported profound and persistent life changes. That is to say, these events changed the way these people live their lives. Many of these people reported, for instance, being less materialistic after the fact, less religious in the classical sense, less fearful of death. They also reported being more spiritual, more focused on a sense of purpose and a common sense of universal brotherhood. Now, that is not to say that no one reported fearful experiences, negative experiences. These cases were reported. They just were not the majority. For instance, when it comes to the grays, for instance, what do you think what the common response was there between positive, neutral, or negative? Well, interestingly, despite what we often hear in ufology circles, at least conventional ufology circles, most people's response was neutral. 60% reported neutral experiences with graves. Only 11% of those reports were negative. Now, which group do you think reported the highest level of negativity? It was the reptilians, perhaps not a surprise, 22%. But let's look a little closer at that. Now, regarding those who reported negative experiences with reptilians, I quote from the book, quote, the vast majority stated that they were extremely scared and intimidated because of the reptilians' physical appearance. Most were described as being seven to eight feet tall, having extremely muscular bodies and weighing approximately 250 to 500 pounds with webbed hands and feet and having a lizard head and a tail. Anyone that would unexpectedly see such a being would be scared and probably traumatized for the rest of their lives. It was thus surprising that the negative response was only 22%, since one could expect a much higher negative response if one sees such a physically frightening creature unexpectedly in their home. Over time, however, many of these same individuals began having multiple reptilian experiences and soon learned not to be afraid of these beings because they did not pose them any harm, unquote. This is a very important point, and this brings to mind the work of the late Dr. John Mack, who referred to this as sheer ontological shock. We really can't overstate this issue. We are hardwired at an evolutionary level to respond with fear or flight when we come into contact with these kind of entities. And to demonstrate this point, I'd like to share an example from my own life that didn't involve aliens or interdimensionals. 
involved an animal. And yet my experience of it was very frightening. And yet my experience changed over time. One time I was hiking by myself deep in the forest. We're talking at least 10 miles away from any other human being likely. Uh, deep in the forest, walking along this ridge, when out from behind a tree steps a full-grown mountain lion. And the mountain lion proceeded to walk towards me. Severe shock at this point from my point of view. I'm only a few feet away. This did not appear from a distance. This stepped out from behind a tree. I didn't know it was there. I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. It was just suddenly in my presence. I proceeded to back away and tried to make menacing sounds to scare the lion off. Eventually, it kind of meandered off. And then I took off. I hightailed it down the, the path as fast as I could running down the mountain. Of course, that was a problematic response because I looked behind me and what did I see? A mountain lion chasing me at full speed coming down the hill. Uh, and of course, this brought even more fright. But what I did sort of from a survival mechanism was I turned around and I charged back at the animal. And the mountain lion stopped in its tracks, kind of surprised and I proceeded again to make loud sounds. I did what you're told to do. I made loud sounds. I waved my arms, tried to make myself look as big as possible. I even kicked rocks its way. Eventually, it moved off the trail and went down towards the river. At that point, I tried as much as I could to walk calmly back down the trail all the way back to my car. Now, after this event, I was traumatized. Every time I went to not just a, a big national park or something like that, I'm talking when I went, went to a neighborhood park where there was swings. Whenever I would see a grove of trees, I assumed a mountain lion was there and about to pounce. I felt like I had just escaped with my life barely, and I was fearful that it could happen at any time again. Now, that was my initial response. Over time, however, I began to see this very differently. When I studied animal behavior, specifically mountain lion behavior, because I was trying to understand what was it thinking, what I learned was all of the uh, responses from the lion suggested it was not being menacing, it was not predatory, it was actually curious. If its goal was to eat me, it would have attacked me from behind and I would have never seen it or heard it coming. It didn't. It sort of plodded out onto the trail in a friendly way, in a curious way. And when it chased me down the trail, it only did so because I triggered its instinct. It chased me perhaps in a kind of uh, fun way. It was chasing me down the trail, playing with me. And when I turned around, perhaps it was perplexed by my response, but eventually it grew uh, disinterested in me and wandered off. This is just to show how different we can interpret these experiences over time with greater wisdom. But don't be fooled. Uh, this was a traumatic experience for me, and I had post-traumatic stress disorder for quite a time afterwards. It was probably years before I grew to really see this differently. Now, in closing, we might ask, what now? What do we do with these findings? What do we do with the results of this experience or research study? You might ask yourself, how does it make you feel when you think about these results? Do you feel happy? Do you feel confirmed? Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel confounded? Does this agree with your own experience if you yourself are an experiencer? Or does it stand out against what you experienced? It's interesting and telling to pay attention to our own responses to these things as well. And again, like I've been saying all along, let's keep looking at the data. Let's consider all of it and form hypotheses based on that. 
that's exactly what free is trying to do as well. I'm confident in that. Speaking of free, these results have led them to some degree. That's part of the reason why they've actually rebranded and changed their name. They're now known as CCRI, which is the Consciousness and Contact Research Institute. And for your information, the follow-up to Beyond UFOs is due in April of this year. The next book will be called Beyond Contact, The New Paradigm of Consciousness, The Paranormal, and the Contact Modalities, Volume 1. Well, that brings us to a close of this week's episode. I hope you'll join us next week as we continue to explore this topic. UFOs, the phenomenon, consciousness, near-death experiences, all these various modalities, these various categories of high strangeness. We'll keep pursuing it, exploring it, hypothesizing about it. But for now, from deep in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exo Academian, signing out.